Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to um, gather and worship in your name, to worship you, Lord. You are worthy of our worship. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we, uh, we, we praise you in his name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so today, in John uh, chapter 11, today is really the last part of what I've been calling this mini-series as we walk through chapter 11 in the Gospel of John. Now, chapter 11 isn't this separate part of the whole narrative in John's Gospel. Chapter 11 is one singular story, but it is a part of the entire narrative. It's just that it's centered around one sort of single event, and that is the death of this man named Lazarus. And although Lazarus might seem like the main character in this historical moment, he was never meant to be the focal point of the story. We've said that multiple times. Rather, like the rest of God's Word, Jesus Christ is meant to always be the point, right? Jesus Christ is always the point when we read Scripture. Jesus Christ is what all of Scripture is leading us to know and to understand and believe in as we read scriptures. And here at Maranatha, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we have decided uh, as a church to focus on nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All of the Word, all of God's Word, everything that we have for life and godliness and to understand salvation is about Christ, so we have been determined to only concentrate on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything we do is focused around the gospel and proclaiming that faithfully. Therefore, as a reminder... This is how I divided up this short little mini-series from chapter 11. We began in verses 1 through 6 as we talked about Jesus' recognition of death. And then from verses 17 through 37, we looked at Jesus' response to death. And then last week, we preached through verses 38 through 44, where we saw Jesus resurrect Lazarus from death. And today, we're going to finish chapter 11 by preaching through verses 45 through 47 as we work to understand the eternal plan for death. Okay, so we have the recognition of death, the response to death, the resurrection of death, and then the eternal plan for death. Now, if you remember... Again, this is centered around sort of the story of Lazarus. If you remember, Jesus wasn't actually present when Lazarus died. Jesus wasn't present when Lazarus died. He even purposefully arrived four days after the fact, after Lazarus was dead, in order to prove to everyone that Lazarus was actually dead. He was fully dead. And then after consoling Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, by reminding them that they could trust in him despite Uh, despite their surrounding circumstances, Jesus brings Lazarus back to life simply by speaking the words, Lazarus, come out. Simply by speaking his words of power over his creation, Lazarus comes back to life. And then in other amazement, everyone there present watched this man who was dead literally walk out of his tomb. In utter amazement, I mean, I asked you to imagine putting yourself in that moment. It would be unexplainable how you would feel. Now, of course, like we talked about last week, no one was the same as we're, we're talking about now. No one would be the same after this miraculous moment. What literally stood before these peoples was evidence that Jesus Christ truly is the power of resurrection in life. 
It was an utter declaration of who Jesus Christ actually is in his divinity. He is the power of resurrection and life. And what happens next is the only thing that happens when we are faced with ultimate truth. The thing that happens next, as we finish chapter 11, the thing that happens next is the only thing that happens when we are faced with ultimate truth. You either respond with belief or you reject it and you continue in the dark. And that's what we see in this passage. That is what we see, these two responses in verses 45 and 57. So let's read those verses and then we can get into the text for today. So we're here at Maranatha. We stand in reverence for God's word as it's being read. So if you could and you are able, stand please with me. You can follow along in your scripture or up on the screen as usual. usual. This is John chapter 11, verse 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had, uh, and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them... Uh, uh, how do you say his name? No, I just forget. Caiaphas, yeah. <laughs> Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one one of the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let, him, let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. I'll pray once again. Father, again, I thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come together to worship you and hear your revelation preached that we can hear what you have to say from us and that you constantly speak to us daily as we, as we uh, wrestle through the scripture that you've given us. Father, today I ask that you give us more faith and understanding of what you're trying to communicate to us today. Uh, be with us even as we are here worshiping, not in the most ideal scenario with masks on our faceboard, but we recognize that our hearts are open to worship and that we are able to be with you because of what your son has done. And we praise you for that, Lord. Thank you for the grace you pour out on us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so like I said, there's really only two responses when we're faced with ultimate truth, reception or rejection. And in this text, as a response to what Jesus has done, as he's just raised Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews believed. We see that in the first verse, verse 45. Many people believed after witnessing this miraculous work. But some ran off to involve the people who were already in opposition to Jesus' teaching. We see that in verse 46. 
Now, that might sound at first, if you process it, it might sound as if maybe they ran to them as a way to try to explain or get them to participate in understanding this miracle, but as we read on, it becomes evident that that's not the case. That's not actually what's going on. So let me state the point again. The works of Christ have really only two results, faith for some and rejection in others. Now, this isn't my opinion This isn't my opinion. The Apostle Paul says the same thing from 2 Corinthians 3. There he says to the Corinthian church that when Moses is read or when God's word is read, a veil lies over the hearts of some, but for the one who turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. There is this opportunity for understanding. What this shows us is something that John has been trying to to have us to see throughout the entirety of this letter. He's trying to show us that Jesus Christ is the active agent in our salvation. He is the active one that brings salvation. Faith alone in him alone is what we can depend on. Amen? You cannot see the truth of salvation unless the veil is first removed for you by God. That is what the Bible teaches. This is not Jeff's opinion. It is written in God's word that way. Now, we like pragmatism. We like pragmatism. We, 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 we would rather, so this teaching sort of ruffles our feathers when we hear that it is God who is the one who chooses. We like to be able to address a situation for ourselves, in ourselves. We like to be able to assess what's being presented by ourselves. And once we've weighed the options or the possible outcomes, then we like to be the one to decide for ourselves. When it comes to the response of faith, that is not what the Bible teaches It's not what the Bible teaches. Now, we've covered this as we've walked through the Gospel of John. We've preached on this in John 3, 8, John 6, 39, John 10, 28. And although this is not what I'm going to be preaching on today, I think it's helpful for us if I read John 10, 28, because it's going to help us later on. In John 10, 28, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is not by our choice. John is telling us by quoting Jesus that our salvation is accomplished and given to us by Christ. Now, on that day, going back to the text that we're in, going back to this historical story, when Jesus raises this man from death to life, many were given faith in him. Many were given faith in him, and they remained with him, as we see. That's the text trying to communicate of the faith that they were given. They remained with him, but some left him and went to join with the others who already opposed him because they could not see through the veil of their unbelief. Their hearts were still veiled to the truth. But again, even though they are players in the story, they are not the focal point. So let's continue on. Let's move forward. Verse 47, we learn that those who had run off went and met with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were sort of the, some of the religious Jewish leaders. The Pharisees then gathered the chief priests, also known as the Sadducees, and together they held a meeting called the council. And the council was made up of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin were sort of like the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. 
The Sanhedrin was sort of like the, uh, the Supreme Court that we have today for ancient Israel. They were the ones who were supposed to or, or had ultimate responsibility for leading both religiously and politically on behalf of the Jewish people. And what was their response to this miraculous work? What was their response to this miraculous work of raising someone from the dead? Pragmatism. They ask each other, what are we to do? Not should we believe, what are we to do? Now, if you notice, though, they're not denying that Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? They're not, they're not denying this. They're not denying that Lazarus was alive. They weren't denying that a miracle had happened. They actually couldn't. If you remember back a couple, a couple weeks ago, they actually couldn't deny that a miracle happened because according to their own false teaching about how uh, someone could remain mostly dead for three days while their spirit sort of hovered around the body, and if they were to, the body was to be revived, the spirit would enter back into them. Because of their false teaching and Jesus waiting four days, they had to also affirm that Lazarus was totally dead. They had to acknowledge that he was gone. So that after Jesus did what he did, they again had to also affirm that Lazarus was, raised, was resurrected. By their own teaching, they had to affirm that Jesus was somehow resurrected. And they say in 47, what are we to do? This man, speaking of Jesus, this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now these men who made up the Sanhedrin weren't actually trying to make a wise decision based on objective truth. They weren't asking if Jesus actually is who he says that he says that he is and shows that he is, could he be the Messiah? That's not what they were asking. If he is who he actually shows himself to be, is could this be the Messiah? Rather what they were questioning or what their motives for questions was and was to do something because of how Christ's popularity would have affected them in their position. Instead of questioning belief, they were questioning what to do. They were more worried about their position and authority than, is this truly the Messiah? They were saying, if the people really started to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, then these men of authority and power and status, what they feared was that they would lose everything. Because Jesus would be in charge. Jesus, as he is God, would be God. And he would rule with all authority. You see, when the Romans would conquer a nation, right? The Romans overtook the nation of Israel. When the Romans would conquer a nation, they would allow a certain measure of authority to remain within the people, which meant that those men, these men who were able to become a Pharisee or a Sadducee, they enjoyed a particular amount of, of, uh, of prestige, and they feared or they realized that Jesus threatened their situation. So, they, so when they collectively said that they feared that Jesus would create an uprising and that the Romans would come and take away both our place and our nation, maybe they could have been referencing the temple and the people, but the truth was that their power and position, uh, their identity was so completely entwined in everything that that's truly what they feared. They actually feared losing their power and authority their, their identity that they were clinging to. 
And that is why Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, stands up amidst the, uh, amidst the, the, the many grumbling voices and he heartlessly says this. He says in 49, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Remember, without faith, pragmatism reigns. What might work reigns. Caiaphas is saying, I don't care who he is, and I don't care what he has done when we, we are facing this political crisis and we have to deal with it accordingly. This man's death is a small price to pay if we can save a whole nation. That is what he's declaring. I don't care who he is. I don't care what he has done. This man's life is a small price to pay to save an entire nation. Now, John, our writer, tells us what this part of the story is meant to teach us. John goes on from there, he says, he did not say this on his, of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. Not knowing Caiaphas actually prophesied the gospel. Another theme that's illuminated throughout the entirety of John's gospel is that everything has a purpose. Everything that goes on in your life, in our life, collectively has purpose. Everything that Christ has allowed to happen has purpose of glorifying the Father and accomplishing His will. Unknowingly, again, Caiaphas by declaring his selfishly motivated judgment upon Jesus, he revealed the exact purpose for which Christ came to accomplish. You understand? God works through this man. He foretold of God's eternal plan for Christ's death. He foretold about the gospel. You see, each and every person who has ever lived needs this truth. Each and every person who has ever lived is guilty of sin. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches this. Because just as Adam and Eve have passed down their physical nature, right? We both have two arms and two legs and eyes and ears and so on and so on. We have the same physical nature. They have also passed down their sinful spiritual nature. Therefore, no one is good enough for salvation. They've passed down their physical nature, therefore we are just like one another as the human race, and they also passed down their sinful spiritual nature, therefore no one born is good enough for salvation. We are all sinners, or as the Bible puts it in Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All of us are sinners, and our sin is against an infinitely holy God. This is the weight that we bear as sinners. Our sin is against an infinitely holy God. And in order for us, in order for us to be reconciled to Him, or put in a different way, in order for us to have a right relationship with Him for salvation, a price must be paid. Atonement must be made. Atonement must be made for our sin. And just as Caiaphas said, one man, Jesus Christ, would die so all of those who believe in him would be saved. 
Caiaphas, this is what he prophesied. One man, that is Jesus Christ, would die so all of those who believe in him would be saved. He would save an entire people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is what Christ came to do. That is the exact purpose of Christ's life here on earth. His death here on earth. The death of Lazarus. The death of Lazarus was allowed to happen in order to manifest the glory of God and to solidify the faith of his disciples. To solidify your faith as we look into that miracle, as we work to understand this word that's before us. To manifest the glory of God and to solidify the faith of Jesus' disciples. Do you remember why John likes to use the word sign so much instead of miracles? Do you remember why he did this? Why, Why would he do this? He did this because the signs in themselves are not the purpose. The signs are, that Jesus performed are meant to point us to greater truths. Right? They're literally a sign. The story of Lazarus' death and resurrection is meant to point our minds to a greater knowledge that is only found in Jesus Christ. It is a sign. It is pointing us to something else. Our sin Our sin cannot, and in fact, our sin will not escape its penalty. Our sovereign God, who is the one who created the universe and therefore has ultimate authority, he is the one who determined that the penalty for sin will be death. The man who created the universe, who has ultimate authority, therefore is able to determine whatever he desires, he is the one who determined that sin will be paid by death, and no matter the sin, there will be justice. No matter the sin, there will always be justice, otherwise God would cease to be God. He would cease to be good. You and I, apart from Christ's atonement, will remain dead in our sin. Apart from Christ's atonement, we, would, we will remain dead in our sin, but for those who believe unto Christ, we receive mercy. We would remain in our, dead, our sin and death, but because of Christ's mercy, we are freed if we believe unto Christ. And we would not receive, we will not receive the, the, the righteous, just wrath of God. Instead, again, we receive mercy. We who yield our lives to Christ, we will be made alive together in Him. That is the promise of the gospel. That is what this whole text is leading us towards to understand that how we are brought from death to life through Christ. On the cross, Jesus willingly, willingly with joy in his heart, recognizing what it would do for you and for me and everyone else who would believe, Jesus Christ willingly received the Father's righteous wrath of judgment over sin. And because of his infinite righteousness, as God's Son, he was able to atone for all his people. Because of his infinite righteousness, he was able, he was capable, he was willing to atone for the sin of all his people. In his death, Jesus provided both substitution as well as satisfaction. Substitution and satisfaction for God's necessary justice. This is what we should learn from chapter 11. He is the one who brings us from death to life. Our salvation has never been something that we've been able to do for ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses. 
but it has been accomplished by Christ and our salvation has been given to us as a free gift of grace on the cross. That is the gospel. That is the glorious news that we get out of chapter 11 in God's word. And yet there's more. And yet there is more. Because since we, who are Christians, since we have been reconciled to the Father through Christ's work on the cross, we are given new life and freed from death. We're freed from death. We no longer have to fear death because there is new life even after our physical death. Because there is a day coming when Christ will defeat the final enemy. He will defeat death, which, um, which will be swallowed up in his victory. There is a day coming where he will defeat the final enemy, which is death, in Christ's victory. Lazarus' resurrection points us to the truth of our own physical, not just spiritual resurrection. That is what we are promised. We don't just have new life today here where we can live in the greatest of joy and peace and security and comfort that we could ever be given. We also have the knowledge of salvation that is awaiting us in heaven with him. Jesus will one day return just as he promised. There is a hope. It's why we named our church Maranatha. He left this world, he left us word in his Bible that he has gone to prepare a place for us in his kingdom. Us, we who yield our lives to him. His own resurrection is the evidence that this promise, his promise is guaranteed to hold true. His own resurrection is proven, is evidence for us to understand and cling to for that assurance that this promise is true. Jesus is the Christ. Remember, that means Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is everything that he said that he is. That is what we can cling to. That is what we can respond to in faith. Remember, please, remember as you walk this out, as you cling to this assurance, and I pray that it washes away your doubt, remember this, that everything in this life and the next has purpose. Everything that you're going through, all the suffering and pain, maybe anger, maybe life of ease or life of difficulty, your sorrow, even your doubt and your concern, everything has purpose to point you to a greater knowledge and living for Christ. Everything has purpose. It's been said that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So I pray that you can hear what Christ is promising you through faith in Him, that you too, by believing in Him, will have life and life to the full in His name. If you would pray with me, please. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, this is the news we need to hear as we come to regather, to be reminded of this gospel, that everything that we're going through, Lord, all the pain and, and, and difficulty and inconvenience can be washed away when we look and we see that our ultimate purpose is to worship and glorify you. Let all of our concern wash away. Let all of our doubt and fear and misunderstandings and frustrations, let them wash away as we come to worship your Son and glorify Him. Thank you, Lord, for this truth that we can cling to and go back to when we do wrestle in this life. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for the gift you've given us 
in the atonement for what we have for what we have done, Lord, we repent. In your son's name we pray. In the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.